I just remember driving and suddenly there was an orange flash. Everything went black, smoke burning my nostrils, my lungs, everything. And this feeling of my body being compressed and this instant feeling of guilt. Oh, fuck. What did I just do? What happened? Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down the Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Children. Yeah, going to a children. I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the trouble like She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Welcome to Life on the Line. One quick thing before we hear today's veteran conversation between Sharon Maskeldare and cavalryman Kane Hall. I want to give a shout out to the Warrior U podcast and my mate, Bram Connolly, whom I interviewed earlier this season. Bram is a retired Special Forces operator and officer with over 20 years experience in the Australian military. Bram went from failing SAS selection to being the officer commanding of that same course. He was there at the beginning of 4RAR re-rolling as a commando element, transitioned from being NCO to an officer and deployed to Afghanistan with the 2nd Commando Regiment, leading with distinction during combat on many occasions. What I'm saying is that Bram knows all there is to know about self-improvement, self-optimization, and never giving up on your goal until you smash it out of the park. As a retired, distinguished Special Forces officer, he knows how you can get the most out of yourself, whether it's for general self-improvement or achieving your own Special Forces dream. On his show, The Warrior You Podcast, inspired by his mentorship program of the same name, Bram features guests with a range of backgrounds and expertise, and many of whom are ex-Special Forces themselves, and they're all there for you to learn from. His recent podcast with retired US Navy SEAL legend Jocko Willink is a perfect example. So go check out The Warrior You Podcast, especially episode 50. And now for today's veteran conversation with Australian Army veteran, Kane Hall. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line, in collaboration with StoryWrite, dedicated to empowering veterans, one story at a time. In today's podcast, we meet Kane Hall, who served in the Australian Army and deployed to Afghanistan, He discharged in 2012, and he's now a veteran's support officer. He has a story of service, sacrifice, and resilience that he's going to share with us today. Kane, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Thank you very much for having me, Sharon. So tell us where your story began. How come you you came to be interested in joining the army when you were a younger man? When I was in school, I had a particular teacher in year six, uh, Mr. Locke, very passionate about the Anzac legend and especially the light horse. Um, his father had served in the Second World War in Southeast Asia. So he instilled a lot of history and showed us a lot of images and, and footage of light horse back in the day. And image stuck with me throughout my years. Slouch hat, Amy plumes, just sort of 
seems synonymous with the army. So I've always felt that I wanted to do that. And then when I turned 18, I chose to. So take us back a little, because for people listening to this podcast who are not familiar with the Australian Army and some of the symbology, when you talk about the slouch hats and the emu plumes, why were those so significant to you at that young age? I guess they were an image that identified an Australian soldier. And to me, growing up, that sort of just stuck in my head. And what did the Australian Army signify for you at that time, do you think? What were the kinds of images, apart from the symbology, what did it stand for for you as a young man? A sense of adventure, larrikinism, classic playing tricks on your mates, kind of pranks and being there for your mates as well. So that mateship. Nothing too grown up about the way that I I saw it back then, but it it was definitely something I looked at and I, I thought that could be me one day. And it was going to be you, wasn't it? Because when you left school, that was the first thing you wanted to do. That's correct. I finished year 11 at Aberfour Park High School. I spent a year working. I was a bartender. I worked at Dan Murphy's Big W, a few jobs, and decided when I turned 18 that, no, that's what I really want to do is I want to join the army. By that point, it had changed. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a cavalryman or a light horseman or a combat engineer or an infantryman. I had no idea. So... I rang up and asked them what I could do. I signed up as an engineer to start with, a combat engineer, but it was going to take another five months until I could join as a combat engineer. So I ended up joining as nothing, just as a basic soldier, and then they were going to allocate me my core later because I could join in January instead of waiting till May. Went through Kapuka, uh, through recruit training, and a lot of crap through there and then ended up being allocated to Armoured Corps as a cavalryman in the end, which was really good because for the last couple of weeks that we were there, I was tossed between infantry, tanky and engineers. What I wanted to do was cavalry and I ended up cavalry. So that worked out really well in the end. So let's just go back a little bit because you mentioned and the crap there, which is one way of referring to the Kapuka experience. And of course, for every soldier that's been through Kapuka, it is an experience. But what was it like then for you? I mean, what do you remember about that time that still stays with you even now? I still remember getting off the bus and before we even got off the bus, having an angry sergeant get onto the bus, I think he was an MP, yelling at us about weapons and drugs and we weren't allowed to take any of that sort of stuff and contraband and get off the bus and line up. And that, that was very confronting. You know, getting allocated to your platoon and marching down there when you didn't know how to march and carry this thing in your left hand, don't use your right, everybody yelling at you, just yeah, you forget everything. And yet I remember it all. <laughs> Some of the biggest things that stuck with me were when we did night vision training. And as a young kid, all I'd ever seen of that sort of stuff was movies and video games. I never really believed that they were real. And then suddenly here I was playing with night vision goggles and using night aiming devices and yeah, infrared lasers that you can only see when you're wearing night vision goggles. And I just thought it was something pretty cool. Something else that really stood out was the bayonet assault course where they fostered your aggression and really pushed you to be highly, highly aggressive, but with purpose and focus, not just being blatantly violent, but to be aggressive with a, with a purpose. Looking back on that now, how did you feel about that experience of aggression then? You say it was confronting, but before that time, did you know that was in you? Yes. That wasn't so much confronting. Getting to Kapuka was confronting for me. Something that about the bayonet assault course was familiar. Um, I used to play rugby league and I played 
A grade level for my school. And so I knew about controlled aggression from that. I knew I could be aggressive and charge hard at something. But what really brought it out, I guess, was was the bayonet assault course. And we got to have a few beers afterwards too, so that was always memorable. <laughs> so what was it like, from what you can recall now, actually handling weaponry for the first time? Because that's something that's often overlooked when soldiers talk about their experience, you know, the, the reality of actually handling weapons. What, what did that signify for you? I'd shot pistols before I joined, and there was a chef at a hotel that I worked at who used to take me pistol shooting. I was about 16, 17. That was something pretty cool. But I'd never I'd never fired a rifle and I'd never fired at a human-made target. Looking back on it, I thought it was all very exciting, but also probably a little bit confronting. You're shooting at these human images designed to desensitize you to having to do that. But no, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed picking up a rifle for the first time and firing it and learning all the all the intricacies and details of of a weapon system, how to use it safely and how to use it effectively. And through this time, you remained clear that you wanted to be a cavalryman. That was always your objective? It wasn't always. I was a bit left and right. I got told I'll never be a cavalryman because everybody wants to do that. And so I got no hope. So I looked at other options. And But what really cemented it in my head, I guess, was my sister platoon's platoon commander was in the cavalry. And he showed us footage of Aslav's in Iraq doing some pretty cool stuff. And I went, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to do that job. What is that job? And it turned out that was the cavalry. And even better, they got to wear slouch hats with the plumes in them. And so it sort of just automatically fulfilled like a lifelong goal. (laughs) So everything came together from the sounds of it. You know, this was what you really wanted to do. Yeah, that's right. It did in the end. A bit of juggling and trying to figure it out, but I got there. So just for people that aren't that familiar with this specific role of cavalrymen, what do you actually do? In an ASLAV, the role of the cavalry is sort of long-distance reconnaissance. Um, So you drive behind enemy lines and to observation posts and you'd listen in on their communications possibly. You do dismounted small patrols and try and pick out information about the enemy. We'd also get into contact with the enemy into firefights with the enemy and fight through or do mounted m- mostly mounted so in the vehicle operations targeting enemy information so of all those things you've just talked about there what was perhaps the thing that for you really was the moment when you enjoyed the job the most what of all those different aspects of the role particularly appealed to you I loved driving an eight-wheeled, 14-ton armoured vehicle that looked like a mini tank up and down mountains through bog holes. Uh, it's just, it was like a, a boyhood dream, you know, come true. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed driving that around. And then on top of that, when you're driving them and you're in a battle run and you've got the 25-millimeter cannon going off above your head, it's pretty exciting. You say exciting. Can you... Describe for us, what is that feeling like when, as you say, you're on a battle run and you've got the cannon firing? What is going through your mind and what kinds of things are you experiencing? Blood pressure's up, pumped, completely focused on the task, yet at the same time kind of have this surreal observation of everything that's going on around you. I don't know how you perceive that. You just, yeah, you perceive things differently. You're very tuned in to the noises you need to hear over everything else. I'm listening to wait for my commander's voice to tell me to turn left or reverse or go forward. And 
so much information coming in at once, working with live ammunition, working with real people where, you know, somebody stuffs up, they could die. It's very exciting, exhilarating when your mind is so focused and there's so much going on and you're achieving what you're doing. Thinking back to those early days when you were in the ASLAV doing your job, really enjoying your profession that you'd chosen, what particular moments stand out? I mean, what was perhaps the first time you went overseas with your job? Well, my first experience overseas, I went to rifle company Butterworth, which is a a small trip to Malaysia where we used to have a long-standing commitment to the region. So we go there and we, we spend three months there doing jungle warfare training. This was completely outside of the vehicle, sort of something new. And we worked on a lot of cavalry recon scout jungle tactics that we might employ if we were to do that role in real life. Specifically, remember trench warfare from that being something that was really exciting and urban operations, so fighting within an urban environment, which was something very cool. While I was there, I had the honour of being involved in the catafault party for Anzac Day 2009 at the Changi War Memorial in Singapore. So that's definitely one of the highlights of my careers. That might never have happened if I didn't join the cavalry. And in fact, that's an experience that we actually have in common in that um, back in, I think it was two years before you were there, 2007. In fact, I remember attending my very first Anzac Day service at the Kranji Commonwealth War Cemetery in Singapore and just being absolutely overwhelmed by the spectre of that huge memorial with the what's meant to simulate aircraft wings spreading out each side left and right and then the the tower in the middle and I remember there was a piper on top of that tower playing and it was just so haunting in the half light of the early morning and you're saying you were in the catafault party there I mean just take us back to that experience it must have been quite incredible to have had that opportunity it was yeah very incredible such a memorable experience in my career and my life. To do that in front of thousands of people was just fantastic. It was an absolute honor. We started quite early, obviously, and I remember getting marched into place around the the cenotaph and not a noise in the air except us, our footsteps, uh, the guard commander's voice, which was whispered. Yeah, it was very, very surreal, very moving experience. And then afterwards, as the sun rose and sort of we dismounted the guard, and started marching back towards the crowd, actually seeing all those people that were there and seeing World War II veterans that we got to honour them, their friends on that day. Uh, that was, it was very special to me. So tell us a bit more about how that day panned out for you. I mean, is Anzac Day in Singapore similar to how it is here in, in Australia? I mean, you have the dawn service. Is there a march? Is there, do they play two up? I mean, what happens later on in the day? I have no idea if there was a march, but we did the dawn service, uh, which was very good. Lots of expats and, and visitors from around the world. Then we went back to our accommodation. We were staying in some naval accommodation. We all changed and then we had a few drinks there, had a barbecue, and then we went into Singapore itself and we heard there was a barefoot bowls competition going on at a bar run by an Australian. So we went there and I'm not sure if there was anything else that happened that day with regards to Anzac Day stuff, but we stayed there for a while, played barefoot bowls, don't know how well we went. And the owner, when he found out that we'd done the catafault party and we're Australian soldiers came up and gave us a drinks card and said, here, you can use this. Just don't don't spend too much too quickly. Half an hour later, he took, us off, took it off us because we'd spent about 400 bucks and he didn't find that amusing. 
trouble is though Singapore is it is expensive isn't it yes yes very expensive it was um about 14 dollars for a beer so that's why we racked it up so quickly <laughs> and there were how many of you there's about 14 of us oh it sounds fair enough yeah yeah <laughs> very memorable one of the best experiences I had in my career and then you came back to Australia and just talk us through what happened over the next few months and indeed years before you deployed overseas again. I came back and we ended up doing a few more bush exercises. Um, I went over to Townsville and did one called Talisman Sabre, which we ended up going down to Shoalwater Bay for. And we came back, did some more bush exercises. I got an opportunity to apply for a posting to Townsville to another cavalry unit, which I heard was a very good unit. So I decided I'd put my hand up for it. I ended up getting the posting, which was fantastic. Posted over there at the end of 2009, beginning 2010. And that was to B Squadron, 3rd, 4th Cavalry Regiment. Yeah, so I got there in beginning of 2010, did some more bush exercises, some more training. I did my junior leaders course, which is the first promotion course that you do. And I did my Bushmaster, which is another vehicle that we, we drive in the cavalry. I did my Bushmaster commanders course as well. After that, it was just a countdown to our deployment in 2011, I think. By the end of 2010, we knew we were going and we knew who was going. So it was just a countdown and started gearing up for, for training for operations. So talk us through that countdown period. I mean, do you remember the day when you were told you're going to deploy and you're going to Afghanistan? I remember the first time I was told that. I just posted to Townsville and my mates in Darwin rang me up, giving me a bit of stick because my name was on the deployment order for, for their deployment from Darwin. But because I posted, my name was going to be taken off. And yeah, so I was pretty disheartened with that. But then that was all right because the following year, my name came back up in the, in the right location this time. When I found out, I was excited, a bit nervous, and just ready to, to get it done. By that point, I'd been in the Army for three years, so I was feeling ready to do something. What did you think you were letting yourself in for? A bit of adventure. I don't know really what I was thinking. It's really hard to go back to my young mind. I was just excited to go. I was nervous to go, but I was excited. Felt like I had a lot of purpose. I was to be the engineer car's driver. Um, so the, the lead car in all our movements was the engineer car and that had our combat engineers in it and they're the guys that search for the roadside bombs, the IEDs, improvised explosive devices. So I knew from the outset my job was going to be the lead car driving around the engineers. So it was good. I, as much as that was, I guess, scary, built me up with a lot of confidence that that was going to be my job. How do you prepare for a role like that, knowing that you're going to be in the lead car that's going to be up front in terms of the search for IEDs. How do you prepare for a role like that? I don't know. <laughs> we did a lot of preparation and I'm glad that I didn't have to just do my own preparation because I don't know. <laughs> but they trained us and we just repetitively went through different drills. 2011 from January onwards was very full on. We deployed in June. So between January and June, we were out bush for at least three months on and off, you know, two weeks here, one week there, four weeks there, doing a variety of different training operations, training exercises, specifically targeted to what we would face in Afghanistan. By the time I went over, I was feeling pretty confident that I knew my role and what I was supposed to do. And then having three extra years on top of that of experience of just 
being a cavalryman definitely helped me with that. But I don't think you're ever really prepared. So what happened when you first arrived? I mean, what was your first experience when you touched down in Afghanistan for the first time? I remember the heat. Um, we just come from Dubai, which was also very hot, but Dubai was very muggy and Afghanistan was just dry, so hot and dusty. And my first day, put all our packs and everything into our, our new rooms, our transit accommodation, and I caught up with my best mate and we went to go to the gym and the sirens went off for indirect, which means the Taliban had fired a, a rocket or a mortar or something like that at the base. So we ran and hid inside a blockaded barracks room it was all hesco barriered up hesco barriers are big hessian sacks inside some cages that are filled with dirt and rocks and whatnot to make buildings blast proof we're hidden there until the the all clear siren went come out and luckily everybody was all good the missile had landed out in the, the airfield somewhere but that was day one and earlier that day we were told that just before we got there, within the last couple of weeks, a Dutch medic, one of the last Dutch guys who was left on the base, was killed by, by one. So it was all quite fresh in our heads that you know, that was a threat that we might have to deal with. Did you still get to the gym? Yeah, we went to the gym after. Because <laughs> that's the crazy thing, isn't it? Is that these things become so routine and just almost normalised. What's your view on that? I'd agree. For example, that was day one for me. One of my last days, I remember sitting in the mess uh, in Tarrant uh, which is the same same base, having lunch and the siren going off and all the new guys that were there jumping under the tables and, and doing all the, all the drills that you're supposed to do. And us guys that had been there for the last eight months just sat around. Uh, it's all good. Nothing's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> obviously, it probably could have, but yeah, we just... It was so blasé. It was. It just was. It heard that siren countless times before. Yeah, the only difference is if you're outside, I probably still would have gotten somewhere safe. But if I was inside, I considered myself safe. What was your day-to-day -day routine then as you settled in after day one? Oh, first couple of weeks, I think, were training, specific in-country training on the specific threat that was there at the time, which was beginning to change. Uh, we went from a very kinetic warfighting threat to static IED threats and to insider attacks. Just before we got there, uh, Jonesy had been killed by a Taliban infiltrator, I guess you'd call it, into the Afghan National Army. So that was still very fresh in our minds. And turns out that you know, later on our trip, we lost three to an insider attack as well. Uh, a few others wounded, which was pretty terrible. Yeah, so we started off with acclimatization and then we went off to the Fort Operating Base Hadrian, which is where I was to be based from then on. Um, and we went for the first few weeks, it was just babysitting patrols with the old guys going out, helping us familiarise ourselves with the locations of everything that we needed to know. Then they left and it was up to us. Daily routine would be get up about five, go to the gym, have breakfast, work on the vehicles, work on our weapons, sit around doing nothing. <laughs> Um, we had a pool, so when it was in summer, the engineers before us, I think, had built a, a small pool with a filter and everything. And so we used to gym and then swim, gym and swim. <laughs> if we were on patrol, we could go out at three in the morning. We could go out after the sun rose. It, it was always different to keep the enemy on their toes, depending on how far we had to go as well, depending on how long we had to drive for. The routine, when there was a chance for routine, was up early, gym, train, 
get a bit of sun, maybe do some work on the cars, do some, some other training that was always needed to be done or work that always inevitably needs to be done or we're on patrol. And there's one day in particular where everything changed. So just take us through what happened that day. 23rd of July, 2011, we've been there for about a month and we're on patrol up in a place called Sarab and based out of there as a patrol base with some American units and we would patrol out to all the local valleys and villages from that location over the course of a week or two weeks or three weeks depending on how long we needed to be there. So we proceeded towards a village called Yamane and we harboured up the vehicles probably about 5Ks from the village because we couldn't get any further in with the vehicles. So the infantry dismounted and went on foot. They got contacted by, I think it was one one Taliban fighter um, at the end in the village. Nothing we could do about that. They fought through. No one was wounded. They didn't get the guy there. He disappeared in some sort of alley somewhere. <laughs> and they came back. We took back off, went back to Sarab. As we exited the mouth of the valley, we dismounted the engineers and they cleared through the vulnerable point to make sure that you know, we weren't blown up. Everything being all safe, they mounted back up and about 100 metres down the road, I struck an IED. And yeah, we're very lucky that the guys had mounted up and were in the car when that happened because the blast wave or shrapnel could have done some serious damage to them on foot. You say struck an IED. What was the reality of that? I just remember driving and suddenly there was an orange flash. Everything went black, smoke burning my nostrils, my lungs, everything. And this feeling of my body being compressed and this instant feeling of guilt. Oh, fuck. What did I just do? What happened? Then I kind of realized what was going on. Dust was starting to settle. Looked around me, making sure my commander was okay. The engineer commander who was sitting in the passenger seat of the vehicle was okay. We started yelling. We're all yelling at each other all at the same time. Are we okay? Are we okay? We're all okay. It was just confusion. Got yelled at to turn the vehicle off because it was still running, but you could hear it grinding. I turned that off and then checked myself to make sure I was okay. My crew commander, he threw green smoke, so a green smoke grenade out the top of the vehicle because our communications were down and our tactics, techniques and procedures um, were to throw red smoke if someone was injured, green smoke if everybody was okay. So he threw green smoke and we waited for a couple of minutes for the dust to settle and to make sure that we weren't going to be followed up with uh, an ambush. Nothing happened, so the engineers got out the back door, cleared a spot for us to, to get out, and we all got out the vehicle and took up all around protection at, at the base of the vehicle. That all happened very quickly, and the feeling now is still quite surreal. I just went into autopilot after the, the oh-fuck moment. All that training that we talked about earlier really kicked into gear, and we just did what we needed to do. I mean, we almost shot someone. <laughs> Lucky that we didn't. Um, an Afghan soldier had jumped off his vehicle after the blast and run up the side of the mountain to try and get a vantage point to see if anybody was running away. The IED guy was still there. We didn't know that this was happening. We're getting at the back of our vehicle and there's some Afghani dude running up the side of a mountain with a weapon. So we just all went to try and have a go at him, but none of our weapons were working properly. And by the time any of us had sort of cleared them to get them working, we had ceasefire called and none of us did let go. But yeah, it was, it was a very close thing probably for him <laughs> and for us. Just the confusion, the fog of war, things just happen and... Luckily, sometimes 
other things happen to prevent very bad things from happening. <laughs> you say you're okay, but were you okay? At the time, I was okay enough. <laughs> I was quite rattled and frazzled. We had to stay out there an extra night in between the mountains in a valley. The US guys came out to pick us up the next morning and they dragged us out. And I found myself in a open-topped Humvee, so a soft-skinned, no-armoured vehicle with no blast protection. Sitting in the back of that, it was a ute version that was driven by Afghan army guys. And that was the lead call sign. Needless to say, I was shitting myself, thinking that we we're going to get blown up again because there was no, no other room for me to go anywhere else. So me and the infantry commander lucked out and got, got the lead Afghan call sign. And then we headed back and by that point I was all right. But yeah, the rest of the trip took a turn from there. Things started to go downhill, I guess. So what happened for you? Started not sleeping, becoming quite irritable, quite alert. I think it took a couple of weeks for me to get a vehicle. So I got a bit of respite from being outside the wire, driving on actual tasks. So the first time that I got back in the car to go back out, I just remember freaking out, thinking there was going to be an IED under every square foot of ground. It took a little while for me to remember and realise that that wasn't going to be the case. But So there was that constant anxiety there of when's the next one going to hit. And I had mates who hit three, four. Um, so it's not unheard of for people to, to hit more than one. And that was in my first month. So I spent another seven months thinking that was going to happen, which obviously took its toll on me as I ended up being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder when I left uh, the army. I think another big impact moment for me was, or well, a few of them, we lost Maddie Lambert to an IED, 22nd of August. That was our first, our first casualty on our deployment. And that hit us pretty, especially because he, he was a sniper and he stepped on an IED, didn't even get to fight. He just, one minute, gone. Then we lost three to insider attacks later on. This is no November or end of October. And I was on leave then in London when that happened. And I remember finding that out via Facebook and just the guilt that I felt for being on holiday, having a few beers when we had Australian soldiers being killed. Just didn't, didn't feel right to me at the time. Uh, I, took, I took all that guilt on, which I shouldn't have, but I did. I guess that's a normal, a normal way of thinking, reacting to situations like that. But what was worse... Or not worse, but what affected me, I guess, after that was we we went on another uh, patrol out to another uh, to, to another area, and another incident happened. Luckily, where no one was killed, but the guy escaped. And to show solidarity with us, the local Afghan army unit wanted to invite us over for dinner and share share dinner with us, which was quite nice of them. And in retrospect, it, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to close the close the gap, but we weren't allowed to take weapons with us. We'd take pistols and we could take knives, but we couldn't take our rifles because they were seen as you know, an, an aggressive weapon and the whole idea was to show solidarity. So me and a couple of the others had pistols, so we took them. And I remember sitting there in the corner of the room, enjoying my meal. Looking back on it, it was a great meal. It was goat, I think, and it was delicious. And the hospitality was great. But sitting in the corner and thinking about the loaded weapon on my hip and the fact that I might have to kill one of the people that's serving us dinner. Just, it's such a weird thing. And talking about it now, it just seems so odd, you know, to be sitting in someone's lounge room and they're serving you dinner and thinking about 
you might have to kill them because they might want to kill you. I'm waiting for someone to walk through the door with a machine gun or you know, stupid, crazy thoughts going through my head because of the type of threat that we had at the time. So that, that was another big moment that sort of impacted my psyche, I think. So the following year in 2012, you discharged from the army. Tell us what happened then. So I discharged in 2012 um, in May. We got back in February, so I'd, I'd worked for a few months decided I'd had enough of the army. That was probably part of my PTSD. So I chose to discharge and came back to Adelaide. I worked for three months in a factory, in a welding factory. And then one day I just, I detonated. I lost the plot mentally. I just, yeah, it hammered me. Went home that day. I had been starting to get help for anger and, and all that beforehand. So I already had a psychologist through VVCS and she happened to ring me on that day as I was having my little meltdown and I answered the, the call and she managed to calm me down, told me to go home and organised an emergency appointment with a psychiatrist that afternoon for me. And that day I was diagnosed with PTSD and I didn't work from then for another six years or so. You mentioned the word detonated. I find that very interesting that that's the word you've chosen to describe yourself. <laughs> Yeah, detonated like a bomb. It was just a massive surge of anger just hit me. I don't know where it came from. Um, it would have been building for a long time, I imagine, and it just overwhelmed me and I flipped flipped a switch and I just I lost it. Throwing things around and just had one of those moments. <laughs> I got in the car and drove home crying all the way. So weird, just up and down and angry and depressed and you know one minute I'm over here and the next minute I'm in the opposite corner of what I, where I could be um, yeah it's just very overwhelming feelings so how did you find your way out of the anger and the, the pain you were suffering for a couple of years I just I didn't I soaked it all up and I lived it and I wore it as armor I was an angry fucked up veteran with PTSD they're all the labels that are sort of around and so that's who I was I masked it all with drugs and alcohol and you know, substance abuse which I think seems to be pretty common from what I've seen since getting out at the same time I was getting help and I wasn't dishonest with my psychs and they knew what I was doing how self-medicating and, and everything figured they couldn't help me if they didn't know everything and in the end one day I kind of just woke up and went what the hell am I doing with my life? Where am I going? And if I keep going down this path, there's not going to be much left of me later on. So that was when I was 24, maybe. And I just chose to start making some real positive changes in my life. I'd already completed some cognitive behavioral therapy and I was still seeing my psychiatrist. And I was starting to feel better in the sense I wasn't having mood swings. I'd finally come off my actual medication and I started weaning off everything else. And yeah, I just decided that I needed, needed to change, so I did. I started living a more positive life. I spent a year traveling. 2015, went up the east coast of Australia and went over to New Zealand and Europe. That was a really good, positive year for me. It was just good things. I came back to Adelaide, got accepted into university at Flinders University. I'm still studying a Bachelor of Psychology. And the reason I wanted to study that, because they're the people that helped me. And I decided I wanted to, to help others, especially other veterans. Um, emergency services personnel, stuff like that. I think what stands out 
from hearing your experiences, Kane, is you're still so young. You're 29, and yet you've had these incredible things happen to you. And today, you do so much for the veterans community. Tell us a bit more about some of the things that you're involved in. So 2016, I started my study, and then I started volunteering with the RSL. Just some basic stuff, some labor stuff, a bit of computer work, and then eventually fell into doing some welfare work with the Plimpton Veterans Centre. During that time, I ended up becoming a resident of um, the Andrew Russell Veteran Living Program, which is a veterans accommodation program run by RSL Care South Australia. And they saw me doing my volunteer work in the veteran community and went, would you like a job? And I said, yeah, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> it's been been a long time, I'm not sure if I can work. And I decided that, you know what, I'll just give it a crack. It was a big confidence booster to be asked if I wanted a job, which was really, really weird. Never experienced that before. So I said yes and ended up you know, getting employment with, with RSL KRSA, who housed me and now employ me. And that's been a massive positive step for me, was gaining meaningful employment with purpose. And now I get to help veterans every day in my working working life as well as the other entities that I'm involved with outside of work um, in volunteer capacity. I was involved with StoryWrite as the secretary. Now I'm on the advisory board for that. I'm a member of the Freemasons. Uh, I've been with them for almost five years and they really helped me see the moral side of life, get away from the substance abuse and to make something better of myself. They're probably the ones who started the catalyst of me actually doing something with myself after the army. One thing that stands out really strongly with, with what you've had to say, Kane, is how you talk about it was important for you to move on from that perception that if you have PTSD, that somehow that's an ending. For you, it's been a beginning and it's been a beginning of something new and something that's now working really well for you. Yeah, definitely. Something I've thought of is I, I can't remember what it was like to be me before the army, but I can't remember what it was like to be me in the army either and I don't really remember the person I was in between the army and now so it is like a new beginning for me and I've taken life by the horns now and I'm ready to to give it a good hard ride you know I love what I'm doing now and I think that's so important for everybody but I know for me it has been very important that I have routine I have something that I enjoy doing I enjoy putting on my uniform I'm proud to do that to get up and go to work every day I can talk about that with pride it's a whole new life I've got ahead of me now which is good so I'm just working towards that a few more years of study and work and then I'll be able to work without study which would be nice (laughs) yeah a few more years to go for that so for young veterans who might be listening to this podcast and perhaps might identify with some of the battles you've had to fight and the fact that you've come out the other side and you're now doing great work in the veterans community and and you're just out there living your life what message perhaps have you got for them? If you are struggling, get help. I know everyone says that, but do it. Don't just say, I'm going to get help and listen to everybody telling you I'm going to get help, but go and get help. I did and it took a long time and it's still going to take a while. You know, It's a journey. Life is a journey. And if your mates are there for you, use that support. If your family is there for you, use that support. If you don't have friends or family or you perceive that you don't have friends or family, Reach out to those organisations that are there to help you. There will be one that you will find that will help you. You might not like the RSL. That's fine. Go to the Vietnam Veterans Association because they'll look after you even if you're an Afghan vet or a Timor vet or you're just someone who served and needs somebody to talk to. 
it doesn't matter. Just actually take the time to go and get some help. Kane Hall, thank you for sharing your incredible story of service, personal sacrifice and resilience. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharon Maskeldare. You've been listening to Life on the Line. I hope you enjoyed Sharon's chat with Kane. For another Cavalry story, jump back to season one and listen to number three, Garth Callender, as Angus Horden interviews this Cavalry officer and veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. To find out more about StoryWrite, listen to the season three episode, number 45, Sharon Maskeldare, and visit storywrite.org to find out how they're empowering veterans of the Australian Defence Force. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>